cells of our heart, to open them up to the possibilities of what you can do. For you are the God of the impossible. You are God who breaks change and sets us free, delivers and heals, restores, redeems, and rescues. And there's no place we can get ourselves or our relatives from which you cannot redeem and save and deliver. And so, Lord, we take our eyes off of the limitations. We let go of the disappointments the failures maybe of the past and we set our eyes on the God for whom all things are possible. Help us to lift our eyes tonight off of the circumstances of our lives, the circumstances of the world that's around us, the circumstances in our family, finances, our health, though of those that are dear to us. And we put our eyes on you. Help us to see the circumstances of our life through your eyes, through your possibilities. And we trust that to the precious Holy Spirit. For Father, we're living in a day and age where it's so vital to you that your church stands up strong and steps out to do the things that you've called us to do to no longer be intimidated by the things of this world or by the circumstances of this world. For we are the body of Christ in the earth today. Fill us with your spirit, inspire us tonight, heal us tonight, encourage us tonight. And we put ourselves into the hands of the precious Holy Spirit to do exactly what he would want to do in each of our lives and to deposit in us. Holy Spirit, Fill us with hope tonight. Open the eyes of our understanding to see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. For these things we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. You may go rave to one another, greet one another, and you may be seated. We're so glad that each one of you is here tonight. Those of you that have joined us online that you're here with us tonight as i always say or try to remember to say if you're watching online don't be don't just be a spectator be part of the service and of course it's better even if you're able to be here and to be part of it i just want to remind you tonight those of you that are married couples or engaged about our 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 date night on friday night uh it's going to be the food's good it's it's young's catered food, it's delicious food, but more than that, it's the fellowship together, the, the, the iron sharpening iron. But we're going to have a little video by, by Pastor Jimmy Evans, and I previewed it today, and it is powerful. If you're married, if you are engaged, and whether you've been married a month or whether you've been married as long as we have, uh, it, will, it will help you learn how to communicate and be close with your spouse, learning how to break down the barriers. God is in the business of breaking down barriers, and I believe he's doing that. So it's not too late to sign up. You can go online to our website, or you can go to the church's app, and there's a place where you can sign up for that. If you don't know how to do that, call the office tomorrow. Praise the Lord. Well, I just I have it in my heart tonight to begin uh, to teach again on healing. I did this about a year ago, and uh, there's something God's been bringing me back to to go over in my own life, and uh, just to, because there's a number of reasons why it's important to study this periodically, because one of the reasons is we leak. <laughs> you may have been walking in faith powerfully last week, but if you don't keep feeding it in and feeding on it, just life itself will distract you, and when we get distracted, there's our senses, there's our old way of thinking that, that pull in on us and try to just pull it, soak it out of us. And so I'm doing this for my sake, and I'll let you listen in, and, uh, because I, we need to be renewed in this. Not only that, I just, all oh, this last year, I've spent more time meditating in this subject than I maybe have ever before, and I believe I'm getting a deeper understanding, so we're going to trust God for some of that. Not only that, we have 
new people watching online, new people that are, have been, become part of this, uh, fellow, this community, and, um, and you may not have hear, heard this particular teaching before. And um, we just need to, to allow the things of the past and our experiences to get beyond us and let this get down, in, down into your heart. So why? We're going to just talk tonight. Uh, next week, I'm not going to, at least I don't plan to pray for the sick tonight, but, but next week I believe we will do that. So that if you have somebody that you know needs prayer for healing uh, or you're looking to be able to pray for them, uh, we'll look forward to doing that uh, next week. That's the present plan. But why, why, why is this an important subject to go into periodically? And I've taught this subject a number of times from different perspectives. And one of the ways that God's begun to, to open my eyes to why this is so important, we're going to look at several factors tonight, is it reveals something about the character of God. Because the way, the way we relate to him, the, way we, the things we will come to him and ask him for, whatever your, rea- whatever your interaction with God is, through the day or through the week or through the month, reveals what you believe about him. And, and we were all raised with, whether you were raised in church or weren't raised in church, we're all raised with some idea of what God is like. Even if you were raised by a family of atheists, there's some image that's got implanted to you about what God is like. It may be an image that he just is out there and doesn't care. It may be an image that he doesn't exist. And then we get into church, and church begins to reform some ideas that we have. All, most of us have come from different churches and different backgrounds, and, and they bring into the understanding of God's nature and God's character their own ideas of it. And, and many times, our ideas of what God is like is based on our experience. Well, you know, your confidence in prayer tonight is many ways based on your experience. Well, you know, I, I may come to church. I may have come here last week and been part of the prayer meeting we did for the Ukraine, and I believe we'll do that again. And, and, but but there, is there really an expectation in your heart that God is answering your prayers? Do you get up in the morning so excited to be able to open your Bible and spend time with Him and so excited to be able to kneel down or sit or whatever you do and just begin to talk to him or is it something you feel like I just have it's something I got to do and if I don't do it I'm going to feel guilty if I do it I know I'll have a better day is it just some duty to you all of those ways we interact with God or don't interact with God reveals something about what we down deep inside of us believe about him. One of the books that I've read over and over again over the last few years is a book by E.W. Kenyon called In His Presence, and there's a statement in there, I think I've quoted it before, where God spoke to him one time. This is a great man of faith, but God spoke to him one time and says, am I so small to you that you can ignore me all day? But think about the circumstances that you've run, in, you run into you in your life, maybe in your daily work, in your job things that look overwhelming to you and, and, or uh, situations where you, you find yourself anxious and I don't know what I'm going to do about this or, or maybe you've gotten a doctor's report and somebody in your family has gotten a doctor's report or, or, or you're struggling with your finances or just looking at the world around us. And My wife was talking to somebody today that was working on her nails, I think it was, or somebody was sitting in the place with her and talking about how hard life has become and referring to all the stuff that's going on in the world and it just caves in on you. And if that's how you see all that, then that really reflects where, what you see of God. And we can be in a place with God for one period of time and then through just life and not maintaining that communion with him he begins to get diminished in our thinking again. So I believe one of the reasons it's important to talk about this because it reveals something about the character and the nature of God. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So, religion tries to define for us what God is like. And by religion, I mean religious thinking, religious teaching, and that doesn't mean it's automatically long because it's religious. What I mean by that is kind of what I'm going to describe a little bit today, is, is we define what God is like by our experiences with him. We infer what he's like from what happens to us or doesn't happen to us. So 
very often people will look at the world and try to form conclusions of what God is really like. Well, I guess God really doesn't care if he's allowed all of this stuff to go on in the world. If he's allowing innocent people to be, to be killed and destroyed in, in, in Ukraine and other parts of the world where there's so much injustice going on, or even in our own nation where there's injustice, such injustice going on in our nation. And, and still, and how can, God, how can God allow that? And that's one of the questions of the ages. It's even one of the books of the Bible. Job deals with this. How can God, how can God put up with it? How can God do this? But what that really is, is that's inferring what God is like by looking at what experiences are going on and then drawing our own conclusions from that. And that's what the, not what the Bible tells us to do. One of the purposes of this book is for God to reveal to us what he wants us to know about himself. There's no way a human being or a collection of human beings with our tiny little finite brains can even begin to understand the enormity of who God is. And to think we can do that is the height of arrogance, of intellectual arrogance. But what God has done is God wants to to reveal to us who he is and what he's like. And that's one of the purposes for reason why he's given us this book. Years ago when I was an associate pastor here um, and Pastor Smith, Pastor Sam Smith that founded this church uh, asked me um, on a Wednesday night, was I, was I on staff then? No, I wasn't. I wasn't even on staff then. He asked me to, to take some Wednesday nights and do a teaching on the gifts of the Spirit that are set forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I, I asked him, well, how long do you want me to go? He says, well, until you're done. That was a mistake. Because <laughs> I went 18 months. <laughs> and the more I kept teaching it, the more I kept growing. One of the things I learned in there is if you read through, and I'm not going to go through it tonight, if you read through there, one of the purposes of those gifts of the Spirit, because they're supernatural gifts. I've been reading a commentary this last week that, that talks about them in, in, in natural terms. So the word of knowledge is good human knowledge. The word of wisdom is human wisdom. But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And, and, and those gifts are given for the manifestation of the Spirit. And the purpose for those gifts are to manifest it primarily in a church setting, although it's not limited to that, to manifest two things about the Holy Spirit. Number one, that he's real and he's here because they're supernatural manifestations. And the second thing, what he's like, something about him. So that those gifts, when they operate, operate in a way to communicate God's love, God's compassion, and God's power and God's caring about us. So the point is, the things that God gives us and provides for us are intended to communicate something to us about God, what he wants us, what he wants us to know about himself. But we tend, to, we tend to define God in terms of our experience. We tend to define God, and we have to be very careful about this, in terms of what we want him to be. And I hear people say things all the time, well, well, well God's, uh, God's, uh, God, God can do all things, or, or everything's under God's control, and, and because we want him to be a certain way. But that's not necessarily the way he is. So we've got to find out what he really is like from the Bible. Another way we do it is just the opposite. We, 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 we define for ourselves who God is by what we don't want him to be. So we don't want him to be a disciplinarian. We don't want him to be correcting us. We want him to be a God of love, a God of compassion, and he is. But we don't believe God will ever require things of us. But we don't want that. And so we eliminate that part of God. And whenever we do that, we're deciding what God is like instead of allowing God to reveal himself to us. Now, to some degree, we can't help it because we're human and because we try to think independently. But the more you become aware of this, the more you can allow the Holy Spirit to, to direct you back into the Word. So this is what we're going to attempt to do, at least in part by this study we're beginning tonight. 
Religion often teaches us, and this is where the focus is going to be for tonight, religion often teaches us that God is really only interested in our spiritual being. So that God, and especially as we get into the subject of healing, God really only, what really matters to God is your spiritual condition. Because that's eternal, and therefore it's obviously more valuable to God. And it is. But the corollary of that is almost that God really, your physical, the physical things of life, the material things of life, your physical condition, your health, all those things, they're really not that important to God. So God's ready to save you from hell. God's ready to redeem your soul and your spirit, but as far as your physical body, God might want to do it, and he, he might not want to do it. It might be important to him, and it may have been important to him last year when you got healed of something, but I don't know, it's, this may not be important. Maybe he's teaching me something, and maybe it's not that important to him. So that's one of the ways we define, we define God. And often that's based on our experiences because we prayed for somebody ourselves and we didn't experience the healing. So religion, religion, religious thinking often teaches us that God's only really interested in the spiritual part of us, that our natural and physical circumstances are really not that important to him. And, and I won't have time to get into this tonight, but that's really rooted in some, in some Greek heresies of the first century one of which is Gnosticism, which believed that, that God is so holy that he would never have any direct contact with human life, direct contact, and with this earth, that this physical, material realm of existence is, is somehow beneath God, it's, it's dirty, it's not holy, and our bodies are part of that. So when Christ came to the earth, he wasn't really a man because he couldn't really be a man and be God also. So, so he was a figment. He was, a, he was an image, but he wasn't purely, a, he wasn't a human being. And he didn't actually touch the earth when he walked on it. He didn't actually have physical contact because for God to have physical contact with something as dirty and demeaning and unholy as this natural world God couldn't do that. Well, that's man's thinking. That's taking a principle of God's holiness and, and without listening to God's instruction and pushing it to man's logical conclusion. But that's really at the root of this kind of thinking. So we're going to explore that a little bit. Mark chapter 7. Jesus is talking to the, the, to the Pharisees about a subject. He's talking to them about about how they, there was a confrontation with them about he didn't go through some of the ceremonial washings of the cups when, he, when they drank and the washing of their hands. And so Mark chapter 7, can you put that up there? Well, if not, I'll read it to you. There you go. He, he's talking to them. He says, for you laying aside the commandment of God you hold to the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and the cups, and many other such things that you do. Now go to the, I think it's verse 11, the next verse I have for you. And what you do is you make the word of God of no effect through your traditions which you have handed down and many such other things you do. Now think about that. That our traditions, and, and not all traditions are bad, but our traditions, when, they, when, they, when, they, when they're not based on God's word, they can make the word of God of no effect. Think about that. The all-powerful word of God, Hebrews 11, 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that whatever things are seen were not made of things that are visible. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that all things are still held together by the word of his power. It's God's word, let there be, that created this universe. The very life that is pulsating in you now is simply a result of God's word. Every breath we breathe is a result of God's word echoing through the ages. And yet, our traditions can stop the word of God 
from having effect in our minds. It's almost sometimes like, and this is really can be happening among people that have been in church for a long time. And even here, because we all tend to have our traditions, and we may have traditions we don't even know we have. But traditions can block the word of God. I've heard people basically say, don't, don't confuse me with the word. This is what I believe. It's like they, then you put a wall up and you're stopping God's word from being able to work in, our li- in your life. Now that's important when we talk about this subject of healing because traditions about this subject can stop God's word working in your life about healing. All right, that's our first point. Second point tonight is that healing is an integral part of the gospel. This is one of the traditions that often people have, especially pastors and ministers and theologians, is that, yes, there's healing in the Bible, but it's a secondary subject. Because what's really important, again, is the salvation of people's souls. And it certainly, it certainly is. We're going to look at what Jesus did and see what Jesus' attitude was about healing and what part of his ministry healing was. So let's see what, because, by the way, the the word gospel means good news. So anything that comes from God that's good news is part of the gospel. This is not just something that Jesus did occasionally. But we're going to look at some scriptures that shows that Jesus did this as a major part of his ministry. In fact, perhaps second only to teaching, Jesus healed. It wasn't just one or two incidences, unless you just don't read carefully through them. Almost more than anything else Jesus did publicly, besides teaching, was healing the sick and delivering people from their circumstances. It's not just something Jesus did to prove he was the Son of God. We may talk a little more about that. Because if that, that's one of the things that I was taught growing up. Jesus just healed people to prove who he was. Well, then you've got to read your Bible because it's not consistent with some things Jesus said. First of all, if he just had to, wanted to prove who he was, all he needed to do was a few dramatic miracles, not heal everyone that came to him. Secondly, when he went into his own hometowns, it says in Mark's account, he could do no mighty miracles there. He could do no mighty. He couldn't do them there. Why? Because of their traditions. They kept seeing him as the son of Mary and Joseph, and as a result, they could not accept him for who he was, and that tradition, that mental, that mental viewpoint, kept him from being able to bring healing to them. Well, if there's any place he would have wanted to prove he was the son of God by a healing, it was been in his own hometown where they had an issue with that. And to me, the third and more, even more compelling reason is that there are a number of incidents where Jesus healed somebody and then he told them not to tell anybody. Now think about that. If Jesus healed them and he tells them not to tell anybody, that's a pretty poor way to advertise who you are by that healing. Well, most of them went out and told people anyway, so was that reverse psychology? Was Jesus just saying, look, I know you're going to do it if I tell you not to, but that's lying. That's not being straightforward. In fact, Jesus talks about his father in Matthew 7 and uses that example. He said, if if a son asks his father for a loaf of bread, his father's not going to give him a rock. And if he asks for a, a, a fish, his, the father's not going to give him a serpent. In other words, God's going to be straightforward with you. He's not going to play games with you. So Jesus wouldn't play games with them by saying, look, don't tell anybody, but I know that's what you're going to go out and do. So that's, that's not the primary reason why Jesus did. Well, look at it. It was the compassion that he had for people, which is why this is such an important subject, because it reveals... God's compassion and the loving care that God has. This was not just a gift given to the early church until the Bible was given to us. Because there's no scripture that supports that. 
One of the traditional teachings is, well, it was just for the age, the apostolic age. And when the apostles died out, when the apostles died out, uh, it, it, it stopped because it was just to get the church started. I can't find a scripture that says that. That's a tradition of man that has been formed to explain why, in reality, at least in the book of Acts, the further you go into, the further you see the miracles. But the further you go into the book of the Acts, the, the fewer times you hear ref- see reference to the Holy Spirit also. The tendency of churches, the more we get organized and the more efficient we get, the less we rely on the Holy Spirit and the less we see the supernatural. And that's one of the things that we have to be careful of here, and I'm not sure we've done that good a job of it. So, the third point we want to talk about tonight is that Jesus identified the kingdom of God with healing. In other words, what, he's really, what it's really like. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. Now, this is at the beginning of his ministry. Right before this, he's just been, he's just been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, and he's come back in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we see is that Jesus went about, and in the Greek, this is a continuous action. So this isn't a one event. This was his normal practice. So Jesus' practice was he went about throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching or proclaiming the kingdom of God. So I read it this way, because gospel means good news. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. So I read that as he's linking, in his mind, the kingdom of God and relieving people of the suffering from sickness and disease. And this was his pattern. This was his custom. It's not an isolated incident, and there are a number of these. So he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing every, every kind, every kind of sickness and every kind every kind of disease. Now, what happens next in Matthew is you see Jesus calls his disciples up onto the mountain and he he gives to them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And that's in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Matthew 8 is a series of healings. There's a leper that comes, meets him when he comes down off the mountain. There's a centurion, a Roman officer, that comes to him, and that's an amazing story. Then there's Peter's mother-in-law that's healed, and then Jesus ministers to some other, and then we come up to the end of, go to Matthew 9. We come up to the end of the chapter, and here we see the same thing again. And Jesus was going about all the villages, cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. I want that to kind of sink in a little bit tonight. Because again, we, 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 this is this, he, this describing, Matthew is describing here Jesus' custom in his public ministry. Where he went, he taught the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And see, go back to verse 35. He taught the gospel of the kingdom, and then he demonstrated what that kingdom is like. Now, what does it mean, the kingdom of God? What is that referring to? Well, the kingdom represents a domain, an authority. So it's God's domain, God's authority, but it's also what the character of that kingdom is like. This is why this is so important, because it reveals something about the God's character. And here you see Jesus. We're going to talk about this as we go further into this. We're going to talk about commitment God has made to heal his people. And then when he got the chance, when, when he walked, chance isn't the right word, when he had the opportunity because he was now a man walking among us, what did Jesus do? 
What did God in the flesh do when he had a chance to have physical opportunity, have physical contact with people? What was coming out of him? What was his desire? What is his character? That's what's coming out. And that's important. Because if you know somebody's character, their character doesn't change. So when we're taught, well, this was something in the Old Testament or this was something in the first century church, but, but, but it's not for today, then that's saying if this was part of God's character, that's saying God's character changed and his character can change. In fact, God says about himself, I change not. He revealed himself to Moses and to Israel is, I am that I am. Not I was and I'm now something different. I am that I am. And we're going to look at one of those I am's. So if this is part of his character, to care for people, to care for their physical suffering, if it's part of his character and then it's part of his kingdom, then that gives me more confidence that it's his will to heal me. Now, you may have all kinds of questions. What about the... See, if you start looking at the questions first, you'll never get God's character. We've got to look at what God says about himself first. Then we can look at all the questions. But we've got to go... If you go to the questions first, then you're, you're closing the door to what God says about himself and reveals about himself. This is a direct insight into God's heart. God's caring and compassion for you. So now let's go to verse 36. And when he saw the multitudes, what was he done? He was moved with compassion. Compassion's different than sympathy. Sympathy is when you see somebody struggling and you feel sorry for them. You take pity on them. Maybe it's, it's, it's some scenes from what's going on in the Ukraine and some of the refugees that have, the many refugees that have fled there and you see their circumstances and, and your heart's touched and you feel, you feel sorry for them. Or as some of these ads you see on TV with the, the dogs that are starving and they're out in the cold and, and other things like that and those ads are designed, I'm not saying they're bad, but they're designed to touch your sympathy to move you to contribute. But compassion is far deeper than that, far more important to that. Because compassion is not when you feel sorry. Compassion literally means, if you break the word down, is to feel along with. The closest thing I can equate to that is, is what a mother feels, and I, a father, I guess I did to some extent, when you're a child. If you've got a small child, especially a baby, and they've got an earache, I remember one of our children had an earache, and they were screaming with the earache. You know they're in such pain, and it's, 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 it's not driving you, it's not bothering me because of the crying, it's bothering me because the child is suffering, and I can feel it for them. And I don't want to do anything. I'd rather take that pain on myself so that I could deliver them from that. Now listen to what I just said. As a parent, because I love that child so much, when I see that child suffering because it's our child and I can see them in agony from that. I mean, we're just in, in California with our grandson born and the, when we got out there during the first week we were there, he developed colic and they'd never dealt with that before. And they could and it wasn't bad, so it wasn't, but I've seen it terrible. But I remember one of our children had an earache and they're screaming in the middle of the night and it's like, it's just, it's driving us up the wall, not because it's crying, because we can feel what they're going through. And you do anything, you would rather take that earache on yourself in order to relieve them. Because you feel it along with them because of the degree of love that you have for them. Now listen to what I just said. You're driven, if you can. You'd rather take that pain on yourself in order to relieve it from that child of yours, you'd rather take that 
pain on yourself. Himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Why? Because he's moved by compassion. We often think that when we're praying for healing for ourselves or something, we have to talk God into it. And it's the other way around. God's trying to find someone he can talk into interceding for them. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, for they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. I heard this once taught. There's a pattern that Jesus tend to have, and it's good. It works with us. He saw something, he was moved with compassion, and it compelled him to do something. He saw something, not just with his eyes, but with his heart. He felt compassion for them, and he moved him to do something. Compassion will move you to do something. Sympathy will cause you to feel bad for them and still sit comfortably on your couch. Let's go on. The next verse I give you. So he said to disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Keep going. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Now we go to chapter 10, and Jesus is answering this. And when he called the 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds, here it is, all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Stop, stay there a second. When he called, this is the 12. When he called the 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. That word power there is the Greek word exousia. There's two Greek words that are translated power in our English, in most of our English translations. This word is exousia, which refers to authority. He gave them authority to exercise his power, basically. The other Greek word is dunamis, which means the ability itself. Authority is like a police officer who cannot stop your car when he puts his hand up. He doesn't have the power to stop your car. He has the authority to command you to stop. If you refuse to stop, he can't stop you, but standing behind him, the government that gave him that authority can come take your license away and come arrest you. They have the power to seize you. So the power comes from God, but, and that's what backs up the authority that he gave them. So, so, so let's go on. Verse 5. Now these 12, we're going to skip through the names of them. These 12 Jesus sent out. So now what he's been doing, he's going to send them out because he's moved with compassion. He's looked out there, he's seen the people, he's seen the great need that's out there, and it's moved him to do something. He's going to get more laborers out. These men that he's been training, he's going to get them out. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers in the few. Now he's going to do that. He's going to send his 12 out. This is part of a training mission. He's going to send them out, and he's going to give them the same commission. He sent them out, commanded them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. So he's already told them to heal the sick, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of Samaritans, verse 6, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a reason why he did this first, but we don't have time to get into that tonight. But as you go, preach. He's going to tell them to say the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, God's kingdom is here. It's right here. Heal the sick. Here's the evidence of God's kingdom. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Freely you've received, freely give. So now Jesus has handed this over to the twelve. The good news of the kingdom was to heal everyone who came. And again, he identifies physical healing with the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. So now Jesus walks out, lives out that, um, he lives out that, uh, you know what, I think I missed a scripture. Oh no, here we go. 
Now let's go over to Matthew 10. Now we just did that, didn't we? I missed something in my notes, so just bear with me a second. Bear with me a second. I knew I left something out. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, Luke chapter 10. They won't have it back there probably. But I'll read it to you. It says basically the same things. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others. So we just read the 12. So just so you understand, he had the group of 12, which we are called the apostles of the Lamb. And those are the 12, you know their names. But then he had a larger group of disciples called the 70 that followed him around. And he trained them also and would send them out. So here we see, uh, after these things, the Lord appointed seven, thank you, 70 others also. And he sent them out two by two from his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Keep going. And he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Keep going. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Let me see. We may need to skip down here a little bit. Yeah. Let's go to verse 8. And whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Verse 9. And heal the sick there, and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near you. Again, the kingdom of God involves his domain, his authority, his blessings, but it involves ultimately, they're all results of his character and his nature. So Jesus is telling them, where you go, heal the sick. And tell the people, here is God's kingdom among you. This is what God is like. And this is what the church should be doing. And we've not done a good job here of this, and many others have not, because we've kind of slipped back into the way things are and the traditions of men. But I'm just reading the Bible to you. By the way, you go over later on, we're not going to turn there. I love it. They come back so excited. This is the 70. They come back so excited. They say, Lord, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. They're so excited. In other words, they It worked! Did you ever pray for something and it happened? Huh, it worked. <laughs> they were so excited. It actually worked. Jesus' word actually worked. <laughs> the kingdom really was there. And then Jesus had to calm them down. He said, that's great. I'm great. That's good. But don't get too excited. He said, uh, by the way, because they told me they cast out demons and I saw it. He said, I was, where, I was there when he fell out of heaven like lightning. So I, I'm not that impressed with this, but that's good. He said, but rather rejoice that your name's written in the Lamb's book. So he's, the priority is that what's important, really important, is that your name's written in the Lamb's book. But he didn't discourage him from doing the other, because he told him to do that. So sometimes we get so excited, we lose focus on what's really, really important. So that's Jesus, that's his ministry, that's the disciples that he trained. So, but maybe it was just for them. So let's go over to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, what's happened is Peter and John have been arrested. Why were they arrested? Because of things they said publicly? No, they were arrested because as they went into the temple, they saw a man begging for alms, and Peter says, I don't have any money with me, but what I do have, because he gave it to me, is I have his name. In the name of Jesus, I say, rise up and walk. And a man who had never walked in a day in his life, who every day was camped at that entrance to the temple, begging alms, and everybody knew him, he leaps up, and he's jumping for joy all over the place, and it starts this huge commotion, and the elders bring James, Peter and John in, and they immediately get arrested and told not to speak in his name again. That tells you where the issue is. 
So while they're arrested and all this is going on, the believers are doing what, what we believers should be doing. They're petitioning their congressmen. They're calling, sending out letters. They're posting things on the Internet. No, they came together and they prayed. They came together and they prayed. They used the power that God has given to his church. I'm not saying that other things are wrong, but the power we have is to bring an almighty God on the scene of the situations that we're so concerned about. And the fact that we don't do that more is a testimony to the lack of confidence that we have that either hears us, will do what we ask him to do, or even maybe can do it. So they're arrested. The, the, the church gathers together, and they've, they come back now. They've been, they've been sent back, and they've been threatened. Do not preach in this name anymore. So they gather together to pray, and this is part of their prayer. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant that your servants would be delivered from their threats so that we can live a quiet and peaceable life. No, that's not what they prayed for. See, they knew what their purpose was. The church has lost the sense of this purpose. And when I say the church, I obviously don't mean everybody. But as a general, the church has lost a sense of its purpose. We're looking for a comfortable life. We're looking to be left alone. We're looking to be able to go through our life and enjoy our life. They've been threatened with their lives. And look what they're praying for. They're not praying for deliverance. They're praying to not be threatened. Peter, Paul, uh, Paul prayed for this a number of times. And grant that your servants, that with all boldness, they may speak your word. They've just been commanded not to and threatened. If you do this, you're going to be arrested and beaten. And they're asking God, don't let us be threatened by that. Grant that we may have boldness to speak your word, the gospel, to proclaim your word. And how are we asking to do that? Next verse. By stretching out your hand to heal. So they understood that part of proclaiming the gospel was stretching out, notice, stretching out your hand. Well, Jesus is in heaven at this point. He's been raised from the dead. So how is Jesus going to stretch out his hand to heal? Because it's through his body. The body of Christ. And his body hasn't passed away. You and I are part of that body. By stretching out your hand to heal so that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they saw that physical healing was a crucial part of the gospel, of the word of God, preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Physical healing is visible, tangible evidence that God is real and he cares about every aspect of your life. I remember when I was the last law office I practiced in, I had a little Bible study that I started, as I did in the other offices that I was in. And the, one of the law partners, uh, I'd been talking to him a little bit, and uh, he had some questions. And I went into his office one day, and he looked very uncomfortable. And, uh, um, and he was, I said, what's wrong? He said, I throw my back out. I can, hardly, I can hardly stand up. And I said, well, let me pray for you. Jesus will heal you. And he kind of looked at me. And he said, well, 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 okay. And he thought I was going to go home and pray for him. So I went over and says, I'm going to, seems strange to you, I'm going to just lay my hands on your shoulder and I'm going to pray for you now and speak to your back. And I did. And he immediately felt a result. He felt a release of that. Now I could have talked all I want about Jesus. But when you demonstrate him, when you allow him to demonstrate himself through you, just imagine what he might want to do through you and through me. And we can begin to understand why Satan worked so hard to try to eliminate this as a part, a part of the gospel. By stretching out your hand 
with signs, wonders for your holy son, Jesus. So I want to begin now. This is not in the notes. I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself. I want to go to to Exodus chapter 15. And you're going to see the title of the series is The Lord Who Heals You. And I chose that title, and, and I like that graphic, because, again, this is, I'm not teaching you a doctrine. I'm not teaching you a principle. I'm teaching you a facet a care of God's character as revealed in God's word. What did I say, Exodus? That's right. Genesis, Exodus. That's not too hard to find. Exodus 15. Now, this is a story. Background here is that Jesus... Excuse me, we're in the Old Testament. That's right. God established a people for himself through a man named Abram. God chose a man named Abram. Last year, we did a whole series on Wednesday nights about this following in the steps of the faith of Abraham. And we traced through how God chose him, why God chose him, And God chose this man because God wanted to develop his own people, nation, that he would have a relationship with them. Because God God wanted to display to the world, again, what he is like through his relationship with a people that they could see. Relationships reveal something about God. One of the things I do when I do a marriage seminar, marriage, marriage ceremony, is it's a covenant ceremony that I do. And part of that is recognizing that God has a purpose for your marriage. And the pur- one of the purposes for your marriage is by the relationship that you have with one another, the loving relationship be- where the two of you are so different, where you see things differently, you experience things differently, you have different points of view, and yet through the love of Christ in you, you're able to blend those two together. Whether you realize it or not, you can ex- people can experience your relationship. They will experience your relationship one way or the other. I don't know if you've ever come across a couple, and maybe it was you, uh, that there had been some tension in that relationship or in that house, and you come into a house or a situation, and there's been an argument there. You can feel it in the air. I, I sit with couples, of, and I don't do a lot of it anymore. I know Pastor Michael does a lot. You sit with couples, and you can just see by the way they sit down together especially when they're opposite ends of the table. You can feel the relationship, and you may not be able to put it into words. And so God wanted to use a relationship with the people to demonstrate what he was like, to demonstrate his nature and character. God created that first man and woman for a relationship, and that's what God is longing for. So God created this nation, but instead of picking one of the nations to have a relationship. We said, no, I'm going to start over with my own relationship, with my own people, and I'm going to form them for myself. And I'm going to enter into a covenant with them. And he chose a man who was a moon worshiper, living in a pagan country, and he sent him to a land God was giving him. And that's Abram. And God entered into a covenant with Abram, a blood covenant with Abraham. And then with his son Isaac, and then with his son Jacob. And then at the end of Jacob's life, or again to Jacob's, near the end of Jacob's life, they end up going down into Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And God had sent one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, down there ahead of time. He didn't send him by giving him a telegram or an email. His brothers threw him into slavery, basically. He went into prison, but God was, God was overseeing all that and placed Joseph in exactly the position he needed to be so when the famine was coming, there was provision for God's own people there. But then Exodus tells us they overstayed their need to be there. Say, where do you get that from, Pastor? Because in Exodus 1, I think it's Exodus 1, it says that that the, the, the Hebrews became more and mightier than the Egyptians. And so there was a pharaoh that grew up that didn't know Joseph. He didn't understand this relationship. And he became afraid of this Hebrew people. So he figured that if they ever grew up in revolt against him, they could overpower him. So he led them into slavery, which means they had to allow him to enslave them. It's very much how Satan in the world works. 
We have to allow him to enslave us if you're, if you're one of God's children. And so they lived in that situation for 400, over 400 years until they finally cry out for a deliverer. And God already had a deliverer in training, Moses, 80 years into his training before they called out for a deliverer. God was already preparing for them ahead of time to bring them out because God knew they were going to cry out. So he's never caught off guard even when you're late at something. He's already there on time. And so God sends Moses to deliver them. And you know the story. The, the Pharaoh says yes and the no and then yes and the no. And Moses, God leads Pharaoh through these ten terrible trials until Pharaoh finally says, get out of here. Sends them out. The Egyptian women literally throw their silver and gold at them. One of the translations says that Israel plundered Egypt. What was God doing? He was getting wealth from Egypt in order to have the material to build the tabernacle that God wanted to dwell among his people in. So he did all that to give you the background. So when they come out of Egypt, they've been there 430 years. Now, not these people, but generation after generation after generation. And generations pass on their tradition and their lack of tradition. So what's happened is this people has spent 400 years living in a nation that was one of the most sophisticated intellectually, sophisticated scientifically. They still, our scientists, our our engineers, still don't understand how they built some of what they built with what they had to build it with. I think that came out right. One of the things they were excelled in was medicine. They had developed a medical practice, medical science that was beyond anything that man had at that time. So this people was raised and trained up in the thinking that the world, the world system, man by his knowledge, has been able, capable of coming up with a way of bringing healing to us and deliverance to us. And that's what they had learned to trust in. And now they're out. They've seen God supernaturally deliver them across the Red Sea, and they're out there for three or four days, and now their food's running out, and their water's running out. And now they begin to panic. (laughs) It's It's funny, except we've done the same thing. They've just seen God do amazing miracles. They've seen the mightiest, one of the mightiest armies on the face of this earth, swallowed up in front of them. God defeat their army in front of them. And now they're worried about whether or not God's going to provide them with the water they need and the food they need. So they find a stream. The problem is the stream's bitter, which it probably means in the original language that it's, it'll make you sick or it's poisonous. And that's where they get mad at God. You provided water here, and we can't drink it. It's sour, it's bad, it's, it's going to make us sick. And what do they do? They turn against God. They start blaming God. So God speaks to them these words. This was all to give you background to lead us up to this. And this is why it's so, so important. We'll go to verse 23. Verse and When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, Therefore they called the name of it Marah. And the people complained against Moses, says, what are we going to drink? This is, again, we do the same thing. God's provided everything you've ever needed, maybe not everything you ever wanted, and yet we wonder, is God going to take care of us? In the pen? Is God going to take care of us? Is God going to take care of us? What shall we drink? Verse 25. So they cried out to the Lord, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Notice he showed him a tree. And when he cast the tree in the waters, the waters were made sweet or they were healed. And there he made a statute and an ordinance or a covenant for them. And there he tested them. And he said, if you will diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which are brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord 
who heals you. Now, literally in the Hebrew, the word Lord is, I in English is I am. When God, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me, is sending me? God's answer is, tell them I am that I am. In other words, I am the self-existent one. I owe my existence to nobody, and I, you, you can't put anything after I am because it limits who I am. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament where, the, where Yahweh, or Lord, is combined with another term, which is a facet of God's character and God's nature. And Schofield, in his Bible, lists seven of them as what he calls redemptive names, where God is redeeming man. Seven of these. And, and, and there is a Jehovah, Jireh, I am the Lord that provides for you. That's what God, Moses, that's what Abraham called God when God provided a ram in the thicket so he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. The, uh, uh, the Lord my, is my shepherd. That's from Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is present. The Lord is, is my righteousness. There are seven of these. And the very first one of these, the, 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 the one of these is this one, Jehovah Rapha. Rapha is a Hebrew word that means to be made whole. Now, I had a, the law firms that I practiced in, I had the privilege of working in many cases with, with some Jewish lawyers. In the last firm I was in, one of the lawyers was, was a very devout Jew. And he, was a, he, re, he, he knew Hebrew. He read his Old Testament in Hebrew. And I had some interesting discussions with him. And I asked him about this word, Rafa. What does it mean? Can you give me the nuances of the mean? He says it just means to be made whole. And what I discovered is the Hebrew mind thinks in very different terms than the, than the Greek mind did. The Greek language, the Greeks divided things up into, into different concepts and ideas. So the, Greek, the Greeks have at least five words for love, and they each mean a different type of love. There's actually some more, but five main ones. There, there, I just told you there's two words for power. Exousia, which means authority, and dunamis, which means power. So they break a word up into different concepts and meanings. But the Hebrew mind didn't work that way. The Hebrew mind put everything together. So what I discovered this word means is basically it means to be made whole. Whole means every part of you is made whole. It's kind of like if you went to buy a car and you go to pick it up and the car's all shined up, but it's sitting up on jacks and there's no wheels on it. And you say, I, 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 I bought a car. Yeah, well, you bought a car. There's the car. The wheels are extra. No, wheels are part of a car. It's not a whole car if I don't have the wheels. And what this lawyer was, he said, whole means whole. And it's spirit, soul, and body. So if part of you is not whole, you're not whole. A corresponding word to this is shalom, which means peace. But that word actually means being knitted back together and being made whole. So here's what God's saying to them. I'm entering into a covenant with you. If you will do what I tell you to do, I will be your physician. What you saw and experienced in Egypt, I want to be that for you. I want to be your God. Isn't that the first commandment he gave to Moses? I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your healer. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Egypt represents the world. So I read that as I am the Lord, John's God, who brought you out of the world. You shall have no other gods before me. So God's saying to them, and I'm not telling you what's wrong to go to the doctor. Am I getting that issue? Because I don't believe it is. But what's God saying to them? I want to be your physician. Because remember, he formed this relationship with Israel to demonstrate to the rest of the world what he's like. 
that he cares about them physically. He cares about whether they had food and water. He cares about what they have. He supplies their need. That's another one of his names. And so when God says to Moses, I, I, this is the covenant, I am the Lord who heals you. And that can't quite say what it says in the Hebrew. I, the Lord, I am your healing. It's not that it's something I do for you. I am your healing, just as I am your righteousness, just as I am your shepherd. I am your healing, your physician. One of the translations is, I am the one who fixes you. Whatever you need fixing, I am the Lord who makes you whole. We're going to end here. Because what I want to begin next time is I want to show you how God traces this through with his people. And then we'll eventually move this forward of how this relates to us. Let's pray. Father, we may have heard some things tonight that may have run up against things we've thought, we believed, or we've, we've heard. Help us to set aside our own ideas and open our hearts to allow you to show yourself to us. Father, to whatever extent we here have neglected this as part of the gospel, as the spiritual leader here, I ask you forgiveness. And I trust you that we are at the time when you're stirring this in us because it is so important at this time. In this time of darkness, in this time of fear, in this time of confusion, for your church to fully represent who you are and to declare your kingdom into this world that so desperately needs your healing, your wholeness, your grace, your love, your compassion shown forth to a world that's hurting so terribly. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us that we may receive all that you have for us so that we may be as those disciples that Jesus sent out. Freely you have received. Freely give. And for this we thank you in Jesus' name. Before we close, I, again, I, know, I think I know everybody here that I can see.